0: Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartledgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true, is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Verses 11 to 14. This is uh, the name of our church, Blessed Hope, Blessed Hope Chapel, and this is the verse where, where we derive it from. It says this: For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Who's that? Jesus, of course. So the grace of God. Jesus is the grace of God, and He's appeared and He brings salvation. It teaches us, this same grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So this is what it teaches us, to say no to ungodliness, to say no to uh, things in the world that corrupt us. You know, to say no to drugs, to say no to alcohol, to say no to friends that want to lead you astray, to say no to stealing, to say no to, you know, uh, committing adultery if you're married, to say no to these things. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. He says this because Paul wanted to remind us that Jesus is returning. And don't let the guy next door who's an atheist who mocks that whole concept and says, oh, yeah, right, you know, for thousands of years they've been saying Jesus is going to return. Don't let that fool you. Jesus is going to return. As sure as there's day and night, Jesus is going to return. But it's grace to us that he's not returned yet. It's grace to all those that don't know him that he hasn't returned yet because if he had returned already, how many people that you personally know wouldn't get into heaven? Think about it. How many people wouldn't wouldn't go to heaven if Jesus returned today? So his delaying is for the salvation of men. You know? I don't know how he's that patient. He is a patient God. He's long-suffering. He's an enduring God. He just endures. He suffers men, even though men say the most terrible things about him continuously. Who's a witness to that? Who's a witness to Jesus getting slandered all the time? Every day, do you hear someone say Jesus Christ is a swear word? Every day. I've noticed lately, every Hollywood movie I watch, it's always a swear word they use, Jesus Christ. So while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. See there, for for anyone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, it says it right there. For the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is our great God. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. You know, a lot of Christians today, they think, you know, you just believe in Jesus, that's it. You've got a one-way ticket to heaven and you can act like and be however you want. But Jesus died to redeem us from wickedness. And he did this to purify for himself a people. We are to be a people purified in readiness for his coming. We must be purified. Who knows in their heart of hearts that they're not pure? I know it. I know it. I know my, I need more purity. I need to be purified, you know. Reverse osmosis, me, Lord, you know, just. <laughs> Purify for himself the people that are his very own eager. Listen to this, guys. What are Christians to be? They're to be eager to do what is good, not to do what is evil, not to do what is sinful, not to indulge in sinful practices as if oh, well, Jesus' blood has saved me and has washed and cleansed this act so I'm going to do it and then he can cleanse it later. <laughs> that's not how Christianity is. It's We say no to ungodliness. We are to say no to wickedness. We're to walk away, walk the other way. Amen? All right, so that's, that's the blessed hope. Now, God is plain to all men. In Romans to 20 the Bible tells us this, that the wrath of God is be- being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So this wrath of God is being revealed through, or it will come through the judgments that God pronounces against men who suppressed these men suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain to them see an atheist and don't let them ever tell you otherwise because i know it's true the knowledge of god is plain to an atheist plain they know this knowledge they might not believe it but deep down it's plain They can see it clearly and then it says this for since the creation of the world since the creation since time began God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so everything you look at when you look at each other you see the workings of God amen you see someone that's been divinely created. You know, someone who's studied the eye for 20 years will tell you that the eye is the most magnificent machine made. You know, it's the most incredible workings. And through studying the eye, they've been able to develop the technology for lenses and cameras and all that sort of stuff. And then they say, oh, yeah, but the eye just happened by chance, but the camera is intelligently designed. Hang on, didn't we study the eye to develop it? We just studied the technology of the eye to create the technology for the lenses and cameras and glasses and everything else. So that's evidence that the eye is a technology. It might not be a technology the way man makes technology, which is, you know, hard cases and all this sort of stuff, plastic and metal, but it's a living technology. Right? It's clearly seen for the since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. When you walk around outside, you look at trees and when you 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 look at birds and you look at animals and you look at insects and you look at all that, that's evidence that God exists because they're so clearly designed. And that's what I say here. God is making it apparent to us that most That even the most hardened atheist knows plainly that God exists and he lives in denial. An atheist really is just someone that denies God and there's usually an ulterior motive behind why he denies God. And what I've found is a lot of them just don't want to be accountable. They don't want to be accountable for their actions. They don't want to have to repent before a holy God for the things that they do that they know in their heart of hearts is wrong, but they don't want to have to be accountable to it so they they just deny God exists and they keep on living that way. For God is clearly evident in the complexity of his design as revealed in nature. Nature speaks of God loud and clear. Amen. Who, Who believes what I'm saying today? Many men and women around the world are in rebellion to God. They resist Him, they deny Him, and even unashamedly curse and slander His name, assuming that there will never be consequences to their actions. They just continue to live in this rebellion. They continue to slander and curse the name of God, and they think that they can do that endlessly, and they will never be held accountable. They will never have to face God. There will never be a judgment. We're living in an age where this is more apparent than ever. Amen. Who sees it? We are living in that age. Everything. The music is just full of it. The movies are full of it. Our streets are full of it. Everywhere you go, you go into science classes, you hear it there. You know, you go down to the local bar, you hear it there. Everywhere you go, people unashamedly cursing and slandering the name of God. They've even got a tent at the moment in at the fringe. Someone rang to tell me about it. I didn't check it out. I should have checked it out. But they reckon it's they go in there and, they, and it's all about slandering and cursing Christ. I don't know what the name of it is. Someone could probably check that out for me. Slandering and cursing Christ, something like that. So they're even making a, a tent. Like, come in, everybody. Let's slander and curse Christ together. Let's go to hell together. <laughs> It's crazy. So, and what I want to know is, why isn't there a tent where you can go and slander and curse Muhammad? Right? The reason is Christians, they know, have to turn the other cheek. And we have to cop it. And we have to take it. We have to suffer for the name. But they know that if you slander and curse a a Muslim, that you'll get killed. There'll be a death curse put on you straight away. So they're wimps, really. They're wimps. They pick on the guy that gets punched in the face and takes it without retaliating. And that just shows the nature of the spirit that's behind these people. But however, deep in their hearts, in those quiet moments of reflection, this is the atheist, they know God exists. And all they can do is convince themselves that's not so. That's all they can do. They keep telling themselves over and over again, no, he doesn't exist. I'm not accountable. I'm going to, you know, if there's a heaven, I'm a good person, I'm going to go. But I don't believe that garbage anyway, so I'm just going to, you know, keep living the way I'm living. And they block it out, they block it out, they block it out. Men fight belief. While they live strong in the body and mind, think about this, men that are strong and women that are strong in their body and mind, their confidence in their faith that God does not exist allows them to live their lives relatively unaffected by the cares and the certainty of death. Is death a certainty? It's an absolute, isn't it? It's an absolute. It's coming to every last one of us unless Jesus returns prior. It's coming. Everyone will face death. How many people do you know personally or uh, have known that have died? How many people have have gone on somewhere? There's an absolute certainty that death is going to come upon all of us. How ready are we all? Are we ready to face the, the reality of what's on the other side? That's a, that's a question we've got to keep asking ourselves. But what about when these same atheists, when the apparentness of the afterlife confronts them? when they're about to enter into the unknown? what about them? When these atheists are facing death, they're lying on their deathbed, their body is racked with disease. They're laying there. They're about to die. They know it. They feel death creeping up on them. What about them? So, how does the atheist fare at the gates of eternity? How does the atheist fare? And this is—I I, asked this question, and I've—I've I've read a few of these quotes before, and I wanted to bring some quotes to you today of famous atheists. This is a picture of a, a famous uh, French philosopher. His name's Voltaire. And he's famous for his anti-Christian attacks. He, he attacked Christianity during his life. And he said this on his deathbed, I am abandoned by God, man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months' life. He said this to Dr. Fokin, who told him it could not be done. He said it to a doctor, please give me six months more life. And then he said, I'm abandoned by God, man. I shall die and go to hell. And his nurse, who was nursing him during that time, said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. All night long, he cried for forgiveness. You know what? When I read that, when I said, when I read that all night long, he cried for forgiveness, uh, the Bible says that even in the last, last minutes or seconds of their life, if they cry out to him for forgiveness, he'll forgive them. That's how merciful our God is. Voltaire could be in heaven. Even though his life consisted of turning men from God, he could be in heaven because of a merciful Jesus. This guy is a picture of Thomas Paine. He's a leading atheistic writer for the American colonies during the 1700s. He wrote a book called The Age of Reason in which he advocated deism. And deism is just pretty much the belief in the existence of a creator, but who this same creator doesn't intervene in the universe. He's, he created the universe and he took off, in other words. But um, he promoted a book called The Age of Reason, or he wrote it, in which he advocated deism, promoted reason and free thinking and argued against institutionalised religion in general and Christian doctrine in particular. And this is what he had to say on his deathbed. He said, "'Stay with me for God's sake. "'I cannot bear to be left alone. "'Oh, Lord, help me. "'Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? "'What will become of me hereafter?' I would give worlds, if I had them, that the age of reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me, for I'm on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. that That's confession. That's repentance, if I've read that before. That's, that's true repentance. Again, this guy, uh, Thomas Paine, could be in heaven as a result of that sort of pleading if it's truly from the heart. But that's an atheist, a hardened uh, or a deist, at least. Gandhi, he led India to independence and inspired movements for civil rights and freedom across the world. You know, whenever I see a man who the world lifts up and puts on a pedestal, it immediately makes me question the man and who is this man. Jesus says if that if the world hates me, it will hate you also. The world hates Jesus, yet it lifts up Gandhi. Now, I haven't really done a deep study of this guy's life, but I know one thing is he pushed Hinduism. He was a Hindu. And he said this, well, 15 years before his death, he said this, I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism, as I know it, entirely satisfies my soul, fills my whole being, and I find solace in the Bhagavad and the Upanishads. But So he found solace in the writings of the Hindu. Shortly before his death, he wrote this. He said, my days are numbered. I am not likely to live much longer, perhaps a year or more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slow of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. He sees darkness coming upon him. As death creeps upon him, he saw darkness. He's starting to realize that his hope isn't the hope that brings life and light to a soul. And darkness came upon him. This guy here is Edward Gibbon. He was an English historian and a member of parliament from the 1800s. His most important work, The History of the Decline of the Fall of the Roman Empire, is known for its open criticism on organised religion. And he just simply said this when he was about to die, all is dark and doubtful. So he went into death saying, All is dark in death. I don't want to go into death thinking like that, would you? I want to go into death knowing that Jesus is my life, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is going to lift me out of this. My body's dying, but my soul is not. My body is perishing, but I'm going to live for eternity. This is a tent, this is a temporary dwelling. If we think this is, this is it, man, what a hopeless life it really is. If life is just about, you know, trying to earn a buck and have a good time, what a hopeless existence we really are. But life's got a lot more to it. We are, the Bible says, but a seed, a seed which will, a seed actually, when a seed is planted, it temporarily dies before it gives life, before it germinates. And a seed must temporarily die before it germinates and becomes who it really is. Just as a plant, how different does a plant look to the seed is how different we're going to look when we get glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Now these guys, uh, the first first guy is, I think he's pronounced his name, Cesare Borgia, born in 1475, died in 1507. He once was a bishop of the church and he became a commander of the papal armies and the guy next to him is Cardinal Mazarin, the second chief minister of the French monarch of the 17th century. Uh, Cesare said this: "While I lived, I provided for everything, but death. Now I must die, and I'm unprepared to die. How many people in this world are unprepared to die? They're not. They prepare for, you know, every week they buy their food, they put it on the table, they prepare for uh, retirement even, and they think they're doing a really good thing if they're prepared for retirement." but so few prepare for the certainty of death and the afterlife. Cardinal Mazarin, he said this, O my poor soul, what will become of thee, whither wilt thou go? He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's going into death, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. I'm going to shoot through a few now. Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish philosopher, satirical writer, essayist, historian and teacher during the Victorian year, era. Uh, He was a a very controversial commentator and he spoke against Jesus. The next guy is Robert Ingersoll. He's a a politician and an agnostic writer. He wrote against he doubted any kind of uh, you can't prove God and you can't not prove God. Thomas Carlyle said this, I'm as good as without hope, a sad old man gazing into the final chasm. Robert Ingersoll said this, O God, if there be a God, save my soul. If I have a soul from hell, if there be a hell, He's crying out for his soul to be saved. So again, this guy, if those words are true and coming from the heart, is a prayer of repentance. He's calling out to God. So we could see Robert in the soul in heaven. We could, mate. I'm not sure. That's that's Jesus' job, to make those judgments. This guy is probably, he's a very, he's done a lot of damage to Christianity and uh, to faith. David Hume, he's an atheist philosopher, famous for his philosophy of empiricism and skepticism of religion. He said this, he cried loud on his deathbed, and this is what he cried out, I am in flames. So before he died, he already felt the flames of hell, and it is said his desperation was a horrible scene. Whoever were there said it was the most horrible thing they've witnessed, is to see the way David Hume died. This guy here, David Strauss, of the 19th century was a German theologian and writer he scandalised Christian Europe with his portrayal of the historical Jesus whose divine nature he denied and he said this after spending a lifetime erasing belief in God from the minds of others he said this my philosophy leaves me utterly forlorn, which is like empty I suppose Uh, I feel like one caught in the merciless jaws of an automatic machine not knowing at what time one of its great hammers may crush me what he's saying is he feels that he's going to be crushed by God, in his heart of hearts, when you're on your deathbed, you're about to die, something happens where your mind opens up to a spirituality that you never probably knew the rest of your life. You start to realise things that are going to be where you're going. The revelation of where you're going becomes very, very vivid. And a lot of men and, and women have experienced very, very, in horrific scenes before their eyes that we can't see, but they could see as they were gazing into eternity while they were still in the flesh. And when, if you could get, they say this if you could just see hell for a moment, it would change your life forever. If you could just see eternity for one moment, if you could just gaze at it and see it, you would never be the same Christian again. You could never be an atheist again. And uh, who knows who that guy is? Most notorious mass murderer of in history. That's Joseph Stalin. He was the leader of the Soviet Union from the mid-1920s until his death in 1953. An amoral psychopath and paranoid with a gangster mentality. I like the writer who wrote that described him really. But Stalin eliminated anyone and everyone who was a threat to his power including and especially former allies. He had absolutely no regard for the sanctity of human life. He killed an estimated 35 to 40 million people during his reign. 35 to 40 million people. That's like, you know, 25 to 30 times the population of Adelaide he killed. That's that's, that's a lot of work. He was busy. To do that he would have to be very busy. That's a lot of life to destroy, man, but that, that's terrible, isn't it? Is that shocking? And listen to him. In a Newsweek interview with Svetlana Stalin, the daughter of Joseph Stalin, she told of her father's death. And she said this, my father died a difficult and terrible death. And then she said, God grants an easy death only to the just. At what seemed the very last moment, he suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane or perhaps angry. His left hand was raised as though he were pointing to something above and bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was full of menace and the next moment he was dead. He gazed into eternity moments before he died and he couldn't believe what he saw and what was drawing him in and pulling him in where he was heading. Horrible place to be, horrible. Sir Francis Newport, that's a picture of him, a skeptic and an English politician, and he was the head of an atheist club, an English atheist club. These words were said to those gathered around his deathbed, and I would hope every atheist reads these words. He said this, you need not tell me that there is no God for I know there is one and that I am in his presence. You need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being, no, being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, that insufferable pangs of hell. Oh, that I could lie for a thousand years upon the fire that is never quenched to purchase the favor of God uh, and be united to him again. He's saying, oh, just let me burn for a thousand years and then I'll hopefully be in favor with God after that but then he says this, but it is a fruitless wish. Millions and millions of years will bring me no nearer the end of my torments than one poor hour. O oh, eternity, eternity, forever and forever. Oh, the unsufferable pangs of hell. Now, guys, this is not a Christian saying this. This is an atheist who was head of an atheist club. It's like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. These guys are so confident in their atheism until the time of death when they get a vision of where they're heading and visions like this that are recorded are for our benefit so we know the realities of what lay ahead and I couldn't find a picture of Sir Thomas Scott but he said this he's a chancellor of England during the 16th century he said until this moment I thought there was neither God nor hell now I know and feel that there are both and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the almighty and the last guy is this guy anyone seen him before? He's had a huge influence on America, on American culture. He's called Anton LaVey. His name is, author of the Satanic Bible. He wrote the Bible, the Satanic Bible, and he was the high priest in the Church of Satan that he started, which is still an ongoing concern now. He said this, oh my, oh my, what have I done? There is something very wrong. There is something very wrong. See, he was thinking he was going to be taken to hell and placed in the highest by Satan, placed as a high priest down there. And he's getting this vision of where he's heading, and he's going, something's wrong. This is not what I thought it was. I've been lied to. I've believed a lie, and I can't stop it. It's pulling me in. I can't stop it. It's like a slippery slope. You can't get off. And that was Anton LaVey. Guys, you don't want to be in a lot of those guys' shoes, do you? We don't want to live that that way and and end up going down those paths. And that's what this sermon's about. So I'll come back to the Blessed Hope just to bring a bit of light back to the subject. Titus 2.11-14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no. We must say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see, why that is, is Jesus wants the godly to come with him to heaven. He doesn't, he wants, he's died for sin. Therefore, he's coming to collect a godly bride. He's not coming to collect, collect a corrupt bride. He's not coming to collect the people that are still involving themselves in the sins of the world, who have not set themselves apart from it, that are still getting involved in the things that everyone else in the world are getting involved in. So this is what Jesus wants. And he died for us to be those people. And that's what we have to think about. We've got to, we've got to start saying, Lord, help me to be the people that I'm meant to be. Help me to be the person I'm meant to be. And... and I'm sure any of you here could tell me now that you get involved in some sinful activity, just say you go out on a Saturday night and get drunk as a skunk. Sunday morning, wake up, what's the first thing you think? When you're vomiting in the toilet. I wish I never got drunk last night, right? The repercussions of what you did the night before leave you sick as a dog on the next day. And if it hasn't left you sick, it's left you seedy. And then you go, going, gee, I hope I didn't offend anyone last night. I can't remember what I did. You know, it's involving yourself in that. And then and you just wish you could have been like one of the guys here that didn't get drunk and was the guy that just held it all together. And you're thinking, I'd like to be like that guy. Be that guy. Be the guy that holds it all together. That doesn't need to get into the things that everyone else in the world gets into. And then you become Godly as Jesus is we become a holy people. Amen. He died for the sins of mankind. Now, what I, what I want to go through is quickly lay this down. About 15 minutes. I just want to quickly lay this down for you, that Jesus died for the sins of mankind. He's calling us to repent. He's, he wants us to make a confession to turn to him. He wants us to believe in him, and he wants us to live for him. And we must show fruit. We must bear the fruit of salvation. And all of these things uh, bring about uh, becoming a true Christian. So I just want to lay this down. I'm not going to dwell too much on the scriptures. I just want to read them out to you. 1 John 2 2. He says this He is the one, Jesus is the one who turns aside God's wrath. Taking away our sins and not only ours but also the sins of the whole world, Jesus turns aside God's wrath. When you get under Jesus' wing, in a sense, the wrath of God passes over you, it does not come upon you, and you can die in that place in Him. And when I say die, there's two kinds of death spoken of in the Bible there's dying to the world now, living for Christ. So you're no longer living for self, you're living for him. And the second death is obviously the physical death where you depart from this life and move on. So he's calling us to make both of those deaths. But the first death must be done now. The second death is going to be whenever God chooses it to be. Isaiah 53.5 tells us that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We receive peace. While he took the punishment. And by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds. And when it says healed in that context, it means we're healed of sin. His wounds have healed us of sin. And so if we've been healed of sin, we don't go and open that wound again, do we? We try to live free of sin. John five twenty four says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you you just have to believe and you will not be condemned, he's crossed over from death to life. You just must believe. That's all you've got to do. You've got to believe that Jesus did that for you. It's not by going out and doing a million good deeds. It's not going out and helping a little old lady cross the road and, you know, knocking on doors like a Jehovah's Witness. It's just faith faith that Jesus died for us.
1: We must repent. Luke
0: 5, 31-32 says, Jesus answered that It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We need to repent. And if anyone thinks you, you don't need to, then in, according to the Bible, we're deceived because Jesus says there is no one righteous, not even one. There's not a single soul on earth who could claim to be totally righteous. There's, of course, some people that are far more sinful than others. There's different degrees of sin or sin levels. But uh, we're certainly all living in sin or lived in sin. Luke 13, 3, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus tells us straight, unless you repent, you'll perish. You won't see eternal life. And if you want to know what repentance means, it just simply means turning away from doing the things that you know are sinful, according to what God tells us sin is. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. If you don't repent, you will not have your sins wiped out. We've got to confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Your heart believes, your mouth confesses. A lot of people confess with their mouth, but their hearts aren't changed. And therefore, they don't live the way God wants them to live. So it's got to be a heart change, which means repentance. It's got to turn. And then your confession will change as well. Matthew 10.32 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. If you acknowledge Jesus before men, Jesus on that day when he's no longer maybe shameful to mention before people, because a lot of people won't say his name in certain company, too embarrassed, you know, but on the day when Jesus is revealed, no one who, who believes in Jesus is going to be embarrassed to mention his name then, are we? We're all going to be so confident. There's our Lord right there. But, you know, it's at these times when Jesus is not popular that if we confess with our mouth that he will confess us on that day. He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, and he will say to God, this guy never was embarrassed of me, even though they got... People teased him. He got persecuted, whatever. He never, ever rejected my name. He was strong for me regardless. Romans 10.10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So it's with the heart one believes and believes unto righteousness. A heart change causes you to live uh, a sinless life. Now, when I say a sinless life, it means sins that you know are sins, that you deliberately do There's sins that we sort of fall into and we wish we never did and we try to, you know, keep ourselves on the right path. But there's uh, habitual sins, sins that you go and do every day that you know you shouldn't do. They've got to stop. They've got to stop according to the Word of God. Belief in Jesus, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have Eternal life if you believe in him you're going to have eternal life john 3 thirty six whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God 's wrath remains on him if you reject Jesus you won't see life but if you believe in him you will uh, you will receive eternal life most assuredly john 647 I say to you he who believes in me has an everlasting life mark sixteen sixteen whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned Simple as that. On Judgment Day, you're not going to be... You're not even going to be... uh, Well, the initial judgment is not even going to be against your sins. It's going to be against who confessed faith in Christ and held to Jesus and lived for him and who didn't. It's all about Jesus. The judgment will be related to how we treated Jesus, how we accepted him, or how we rejected him. That's the judgment. After that, then we... You're judged according to what you've done. So, a person who believes in Jesus, like us, we're going to be saved. If we believe in Jesus, we're saved. It's as simple as that. After that, then we're judged according to how we treated our Christian life, how we walked. Then there'll be different levels in the the kingdom of God. Some, like the Apostle Paul, will be be placed in in places of honour, and there'll be those that won't be in. The places of honour to the same degree. So what you've got to do is be determined now to live and do right acts your whole life. Live for him. Do right acts. Do good things. All in the name of Jesus. And don't ever assume that those good acts are going to give you salvation. It's not about the acts. It's about what Jesus did that gives you the salvation. Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him. Did you hear that? We are no longer to live for ourselves but to live for him who died for them and was raised again. We are called to live for Jesus now. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 to 11. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him. Therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And that's what we do as a church. We encourage one another, build each other up and he... Adds that that in fact we are doing. One Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. What are we going to live for? Righteousness. We're going to live for doing good. We're going to live to be holy. That's what the call is. By his wounds you have been healed, healed of sin. Ephesians two eight to nine. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves; it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's got nothing to do with what you do that gets you saved. And that's the emphasis of the, of the gospel. It's not according to how good you are that you're saved. Because when you're saved, you are in sin, living a life of sin. You're unholy, unrighteous, doing the wrong thing, going the wrong direction. But when you receive Jesus, you, you get transformed immediately into his righteousness and then you live according to his righteousness. Romans 328 28-34, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, 5, But the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, faith credited as righteousness. So our faith in Christ will, will automatically be credited to us and get us into the kingdom of God. Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So it's not according to works. Uh, You'll also show the fruit of repentance, which is the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. That's what we're called to. We're called to just uh, show that sort of fruit. James 2:14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now this is the the flip side of that. You're saved by grace, but if you're truly saved by grace and transformed by that, and your heart's been changed, you will produce fruit. It's just they go hand in hand. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? See, somebody who's truly turned to Jesus will have deeds. They will have. They will spread the gospel. They'll tell others about Jesus. They'll be reaching out. They say that if you don't tell people about Jesus, it means you're not truly Christian. Charles Spurgeon said that. He equated that if you really believe what you believe, there's no way that you can't try to tell someone because your concern for them would be genuine, wouldn't it, because of what you believe. My concern is for absolutely everybody that they come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It says this, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister with exact clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you faith by what I do. So he's saying his faith is expressed by what he does. Our faith... uh, must be expressed by what we do. It must be evident to people that we're truly Christian. And this is the last screen I want to talk about. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. And this is God's will for us, that we should be sanctified. Now, sanctified simply means set apart for God or or set apart to live a holy life. We should be sanctified, that we should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. We are called to live a holy life. Now, you know, if you set your heart to live a holy life, it's the most honourable thing you'll ever set your heart to do. If you say, I'm going to be a holy man of God and a holy woman of God and I've set my heart and that's what I'm going to be for my whole life, it doesn't mean suddenly no one can talk to you because you're too holy for everybody. It's got nothing to do with that. It, it becomes, you become a useful person to God. And people tend to gravitate towards someone who is holy and honourable. And living for Christ in, in, in that way. So if you want people to, to be attracted to you, you want people to want to you, you know, live a whole in righteous life. But do it with sincerity and do it humbly and be a very approachable person, someone that can reach out and touch someone and, and speak to them on their level and get to know people. And, you know, laugh with them and cry with them and, you know, share things with them and, and listen to them speak, listen to people talk to you. Try to help them in any way you possibly can, within reason. You know, we're called to that. That's what a true Christian's called to. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is a, a, a problem in the church today where people don't want to even be holy. There's church circles around where the youth groups on a Friday night go to the pub and get drunk. And that's that's called a youth group. It's supposedly a Christian group. Go down the pub and drink together. How far the church has declined that we get to that point. You know, a hundred years ago, you wouldn't find a church group anywhere that would do that, except if they were a cult. So it's come to the point now where Our culture has affected the Christian church that badly that the church cannot even discern right from wrong anymore. They can't even tell you what sin is. You know, God died for sin. That's how much he despises sin. He died to be rid of it. Now, if we entertain it, we're entertaining something. He died to get out of us. You know, how can we do that to the Lord? And he died for sin. So now we've got to live for Jesus and deny, turn our backs and repent and walk away from the sin nature. Yeah? Who's getting this? All right. So I felt that was from God today. I felt that was a message that everyone needed to hear. So I'm just going to pray and we'll we'll close on that. Lord, I just thank you for the message. I I pray it was a a message that was received into everyone's hearts. I found it a hard message to preach, Lord, uh, but... Lord, I feel that uh, many people here will will have benefited from it. I pray that you just uh, help us to um, apply what we've heard today and help us to turn and live and walk in everything that you've called us to as Christians. Help us to be holy. Help us to walk in righteousness. Help us to desire to uh, do good unto others and uh, just to live the Christian life as you would have lived it, Lord, when you were on earth. And help us to be like you more and more and more so that we can have a greater effect on this planet for you. Help change us. Help us to break those uh, sinful holds on our life. There's, I'm sure there's things in every one of us here that we're dealing with. I pray that you give us the spirit to be able to, uh, to, to really overcome these things, that we'd be called overcomers, and overcome the sinful practices which we may indulge in from time to time or even on a daily basis. And help us to get above it and start to live life as you've called us to, to live holy, sanctified, honourable lives in you. And I pray this in your wonderful name. And Lord, I just pray your blessing over everyone here, that their week is blessed, that they uh, have a wonderful uh, week, that everything that they set their hearts to do will be accomplished. And uh, um, Lord, that you'll help them overcome obstacles and problems and, and do it with grace and, uh, and find an easy solution to everything. And we pray this in your wonderful name and just bless this time now as we fellowship together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series. Uncovering Religion, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, Apologetics 101, Critical Doctrine and End Times. Feel free to check them out.